Good morning, everyone. It's a welcome to Forest View. It's great to be with you. For those who I haven't met, uh, my name is Mark Evans, and my wife Catherine and I, we've been around Forest View for about 13 years. For 10 of those years, I, was, I served as youth pastor, and I'm pleased to be with you this morning to, to share in God's Word with you. Um, as you may know, if you've been around the last few weeks, we are in the midst of a series on the Psalms, where we are looking at these poems, these songs, these kind of emotional, emotive almost, reflections on our journey with God. And so today, our psalm is Psalm 130. And so I'm going to just begin by reading the psalm to you from beginning to end. It's not very long. And uh, I'm going to read it from this card. And you can follow along on these cards that are scattered throughout. Or you could just close your eyes and listen to the word as it comes over you and, and see what it is that speaks to you this morning. What is it that grasps your heart as we, as we sit here, as you bring your story into this morning. I'm just going to pray, and then I'm going to read the psalm. God, be with us this morning as we look at Psalm 130. God, we pray that you would speak to us, wherever we come from, whatever we bring with us, God, that you would, um, by your Spirit, uh, minister to us in the place that we need to meet with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Psalm 130. So we're going to kind of walk through this, uh, this psalm today as we go through this, this sermon, and uh, we're going to start at the very beginning with the title. And there's a, this psalm has a title attached to it, and it says, A Song of Ascents. Now, this is a title that's given to a collection of 15 psalms within the Psalter, Psalms 120 to 134. And scholars kind of have two ideas of what that means and what these psalms were used for. On the one hand, people, the scholars might say that they were uh, songs that were sung by the people of Israel as they made pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the, main, the three main festivals that uh, the Jewish people celebrated. And so these were songs to be sung on your way to the festival. The other thought is that maybe these psalms were songs that were sung by the Levites as they ascended the steps of the temple to go and do their priestly duty. There are 15 steps from the ground up to the temple, and there are 15 psalms of ascent. Maybe they were used for both reasons and both purposes, but either way, what we know is that these were psalms that were sung as the people headed off to meet with God, to go to worship, and like all the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 130 
is not very long. It's just eight verses. But it packs a lot in. There's a lot going on. And we're going to try to unpack it this morning. And I'm going to suggest to you that the psalm actually comes to us in four movements or four sections that kind of give us a vision or this picture of the psalmist's journey with God through the experiences that he's been having. And so as we look at the first movement, as we kind of enter into this psalm, I want to begin by showing you a picture. And this is a picture of the synagogue chapel at the Hasidah University Hospital in Jerusalem. Now, I imagine that the first thing that grabs your attention, the first thing your eyes are drawn to are the beautiful stained glass windows and the light that's coming through. It looks like a very beautiful holy space. But it's actually not the windows that I want you to pay attention to. What I want you to notice is that directly beneath the windows, you'll see that the ground is sunken. There are two steps down. And that in the middle of that kind of lower space, there is an altar or a pulpit of some kind. Why did they build this room in this way? Well, the reason they did is they wanted to, through the architecture, they wanted to uh, communicate the conviction that prayer should always be offered out of the depths. And out of the depths is where Psalm 130 begins. In the first movement of the psalm, we find the first two verses, and it says this. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. And as Christie has said to us, this is a cry of lament. Out of the depths. Those are evocative words. They're guttural. They, they grab you. And the psalm doesn't tell us what exactly is going on in the psalmist's life that has brought him into the depths. But we don't really need it to. And in fact, maybe it's better that it doesn't because now we can all relate. But what we do know is that something has happened. The psalmist has suffered a loss of some kind. And losses often come to us as an ending. And these endings can take many forms. The end of a relationship, the loss of a job, the ending of a season of life and the transition into something new, the shattering of a dream, the loss of what's been familiar, whether that's moving to a new place or whatever that might look like. The Recognition that our health is failing. And of course, the death of someone close to us. And these endings like this are always disorienting. They are a kind of falling apart, a coming undone. And it's from here that the psalmist cries out, out of the depths. I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. In this place, in this dark place, the psalmist doesn't turn his back on God. He cries out to him. And this is why the laments, I believe, 
are included in this book of praise, the book of Psalms. Because here we see faith being worked out in the midst of hardship, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of loss. And in the psalmist's cry, we hear beneath the surface a recognition that God is with him even in the depths. And despite this darkness that the psalmist finds himself in, he is confident in God, even if he can't currently see him or see what he's doing and what he's up to. And so he cries out. Now, what is the basis of this confidence? Um, and I think that is kind of what happens in movement two. We begin a bit of a picture of, from the psalmist of why he is confident that he can cry out to the God in the midst of the depths and still be heard. And so, verses three and four say, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Now there's kind of two things that are going on here that, as I kind of observe it. The first is that maybe what we're seeing here is that the psalmist is recognizing that the depths that he is in are the result of his own choices, the result of his own sin. That's possible as we read this psalm this way. Um, he may have come face to face with his own brokenness, with his own selfishness, and it may have shook him to the core. And we too have probably been surprised by the level of hurt we can cause, the level of meanness that lies within us that can spring forth and damage relationships and damage the things we love. So it's possible that the psalmist is recognizing that the depths are part of his own creation. But there's something else happening here as well, regardless of whether that first part is true. I think it could be, and it could be for each one of us in our own depths. But I think that what is important to recognize is that the psalmist has some history with God. The psalmist knows something about God's character. The psalmist has experienced the forgiveness and mercy of God at other points in his life. And so regardless of whether this depths that he is journeying through are the result of his own choices, the result of something that has been done to him by the choices of others, or something that happened to him on which he has no control. Regardless, because he's known God and known his character and knows that, he, that with God there is forgiveness, he knows that no matter where he is, God is a God who will listen and act when he cries out to him. And so from the depths of his experience, the psalmist cries to God with the confidence that he has heard, and then he waits. And that's the theme of the third movement, and it's also the title of the sermon, so we're going to spend the most time there. Um, waiting. Verses 5 and 6 say it this way, and I love this this is one of my favorite sections of scripture, I think. I love this. I've always loved this. It's always a this is a scripture I've returned to many times. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. 
Now, as I've been thinking about waiting in the preparation of this sermon, I've been thinking a little bit, I did a little bit of internet research. And that research was, I was trying to think about, like, how much time do we spend waiting in our lives? Um, and, you know, as I did internet research, I realized that you get lots of conflicting answers, and it's hard to know whether any of these things are actually true, but they give us an idea, and they're kind of fun to look at. So the average person spends approximately, according to the internet, um, five years of their life waiting in line for things, okay? And spends about six months waiting at traffic lights, especially the one at Bronte, you're turning uh, here, trying to get, <laughs> trying to, get to church. Um, 43 days on hold. Oh my goodness. We all know how that feels. Um, and then 38 to 50 hours a year waiting in traffic, although I'm pretty sure that this was not done in the GTA, because I think you could do that in about a month. But um, anyway, so whether those are accurate or not, you get the idea waiting. And all those things that you think about that make you feel a certain way, annoyed, <laughs> right? Waiting like this feels like a waste. It is something to be gotten through quickly. It is taking away from the thing we really want to accomplish or experience. It is an annoyance. But that's not the only kind of waiting there is, although I think when we think of waiting, this is the kind of thing that comes to our mind first. There's another kind of waiting, and maybe I can explain that by the, the, expect, the excitement of a child as they wait for Christmas morning to come and as the days of their advent calendar get closer. Or the expectation of a couple as they're waiting for the birth of a child. Or the anticipation of a reunion with a friend or family member that you haven't seen in a long time. In that type of waiting, the waiting itself is almost a part of the goodness of the thing itself. The waiting almost adds to the excitement. And we still probably wish this, we always want the waiting to be less than it is, but the waiting builds the anticipation. In the psalm, I think the psalmist is talking about even a different type of waiting again. Here we see a yearning and a longing for a new beginning. The psalmist has been in the depths and has faced the endings that it has brought, and he is yearning for something new, for God to show up and to be at work, and for again, him again to experience God's goodness. And it is a deep, deep yearning and longing for God to be present. And all three of these, whether it's the annoyance of traffic, the excitement of Christmas morning, or the longing um, for God to move and to bring new beginnings out of our endings, um, we don't always like the waiting. The waiting is difficult. I want to give you two kind of thoughts about waiting in the Christian life this morning that are both maybe encouraging and discouraging all at the same time. So the first one is this, that waiting for God is one of the central experiences of the Christian life. That part of what it means to grow in our faith is to learn what it means to wait for God to show up. I want you to think about the Bible, to think about um, the characters, the people that you meet in the scriptures, and think about how much waiting is a part of their story. So for instance, think about Abraham and Sarah, who were given a promise of God for a child. And they had to wait 25 years to see that promise fulfilled. 
And in the meantime, they got a little bit antsy and they tried to do it on their own. They tried to like arrange things so they could do this. We could fix God's way. Maybe God needs our help. And of course, in doing so, they brought lots of hardship and difficulty into their own lives. Or think about Joseph, who was literally thrown into the pit, into the depths by his brothers, and then is sold off into slavery. And he goes off and is a servant, and then he is in jail for some time. And finally, many years later, he is able to say, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And he is, he is restored to his family, and he is given this role where he is able to save the people from famine. But there's a long wait in between where Joseph is wondering, what is happening to my life? Where is God? Or think about Moses, who grows up in the temple with Pharaoh. And through a choice of his own, through his own anger and through his own action, spends 40 years out in the desert in hiding, waiting for God to resurrect a new purpose for him. And then, of course, in the rest of his life, he spends 40 more years wandering and waiting before he gets to the promised land. He doesn't even get there. Or you have Hannah at the temple crying out to God for a child year after year after year until finally God acts. Or Job, who has his life destroyed, basically, taken away from him, and who has to wait years before, in the end of Job, we read that you know, God, everything is restored to Job, and he has lots of great things, but there's a long waiting in that process where he has to struggle and wrestle with God and what is going on. And then, of course, there's Jesus, who waits 30 years to begin his ministry. And we often wonder, what was this 30 years about? Why didn't he come right out of the womb, right there, and begin some ministry? He's God. And yet for 30 years he waits. And think about John the Baptist, the same thing, born around the same time. Him waiting those 30 years so he can begin his ministry. Waiting. It's all through Scripture as God's people learn to wait on God and see what he has for them. So it seems, I think, that in the waiting, we are invited to deepen our trust in God. And that it's through this experience that God is able to bring about some significant internal transformation in us that allows us to be prepared for what God has for us. And so there's a second truth. Um, not just that waiting is central to the Christian life, the second truth, this one seems even less discouraging, is that waiting is often much harder and will likely take much longer than you think. That God isn't often a God of quick fixes. There's a journey he wants to take us on, and that journey can sometimes be very difficult. And this resonates with me from my own experience of waiting on God. As a family, we went through a two-year journey where we were waiting and wondering what God had for us, where God was leading us next. And during this time, there were some significant endings. As I said goodbye to 10 years of youth ministry here at Forest View, as I said goodbye to 16 years of ministry at Ontario Pioneer Camp. And it was a very disorienting experience. We talked, Lois talked about the Psalms of disorientation and lament is one. And as the months went by, 
without any kind of clear picture of where God was leading us, it was a time of discouragement and a time of self-doubt. But that's not all it was. Because it was also a time of reorientation. Looking back now, maybe I couldn't have always seen it in the moment, but it was a time for me to rediscover who I was apart from my familiar roles as youth pastor and camp director. It was a time of relearning my own identity as God's child, not just because of what I did, but just because he loved me. And it was a season where we learned to receive the generosity and support of others and to experience God's provision through his people. And through this, our trust in his care for us grew. Was this a difficult time for us? 100 times yes. Do we wish it had been a shorter period? Also yes. But, I can also see now that that time of waiting prepared me for where God has led me to now. In fact, I'm pretty sure that without that waiting period, I wouldn't have even gotten here. God needed to increase my humility and to teach me to trust and rely on his care and provision before I was ready to step into a role like I have now with Youth Unlimited where I'm required to raise my own support. I know for sure that if the opportunity had, had been presented to me at the very beginning when I was coming in this story, when I was in the disorientation, there's no way I would have walked into it. Not a chance. God needed to use the disorienting and reorienting, reorienting, yeah, waiting to shape my heart in such a way that now it excites me to be doing life in this way, to be doing life in community. And even as I move towards looking to be, hopefully, fully funded, I do so with the peace and the confidence that God has met with me. I have experienced his goodness. I've experienced his care and provision in the waiting. And so I can wait even now for more. But the waiting was not passive. It wasn't like put your feet up on the couch and just sort of wait for things to blow over and for time, you know, time to heal all wounds and for things just to go ahead. It's an active waiting that God calls us to, an active waiting. And it was, for me, it was filled with lots of prayer, lots of listening, lots of discerning, reading scripture, journaling, meeting with people, all while waiting for God to open and close doors, for God's peace to lead me in the direction that he was calling. And I love how the psalmist puts it in verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. In his word, I put my hope. That was important for me during that season to encounter the stories of God, to hear about God's character and what he has done in the past was important in my own time of waiting. To put my hope in God's word was a real, deeply profound thing. And then verse 7, which I love more than watch and wait for the morning. I picture 
the watchman on a wall of a city wall, looking out in the dark, looking for enemies at the gates, looking for people coming who are visitors, looking, just looking and being tired as the light wears on and wanting to close their eyes and not being able to do it. And yet, what sustains him? The certainty that morning is coming. No matter how long the night has been, and no matter, no, no matter how many trials it has brought, morning is coming. It will arrive on the horizon. And so the psalmist waits. Even more than the watchman waits for the morning, he waits for God to show up and to move. And while we don't get the details, the psalm doesn't give us that. We know that morning comes for the psalmist. Between verses 6 and 7, something happens. While the first six verses of the psalm are more about the psalmist's inner groanings, his lament, his depths, in verse 7 and 8, there is a change in tone. We find the psalmist making public declarations to Israel, encouraging them, calling out to them, reminding them of who God is. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. The waiting of the psalmist has been worth it. God has acted and in many ways, what I hear here is mirrored in what David wrote in Psalm 40, where he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And that's what's happening, I think, in Psalm 130. Something has happened between verses 6 and 7, and now the psalmist has a new song as he calls out and reminds Israel that with God is unfailing love. I know the depths that you face look bleak. They are deep. But with God, there is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. God can redeem all things, God can even redeem the depths, that good can come out of anything with Christ. In a room of this size, there will undoubtedly be people who have stories to tell of how God met them in the depths. And there will also be people who don't have those stories yet because the depths are all they can see. As someone who has journeyed through my own depths, and each of our stories is different, and our depths in some senses are deeper than others, what I could encourage you to say is that I've seen God's goodness in the midst of the confusion, of the disorientation. And I want to offer you the words from Psalm 27. We're just going through all through the Psalms today, but Psalm 27, where he says, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. 
I am confident of this, that I will still see the goodness of God in the land of the living. It's not all pie in the sky waiting. For, you know, there is here and now. God's goodness is available. He will meet with us. So take, take heart and be strong, or be strong and take heart, whatever it says back there, um, and wait for the Lord, because he will act. Stepping back a little bit, and since I'm up here, I'm just going to say this. I got the mic, so now I'm going to say this. Um, I think it bears saying that as a church family right now, we are going through the midst of a disorienting time. And we are waiting to see what God has for us next. And there's a lot of confusion in the midst of that. And my advice would be for us not to rush through the waiting to remain in the unknown and to allow ourselves to be shaped by it as a people. To actively be praying and listening and discerning what God has to say to us during this time of uncertainty because he may have some work to do in us as individuals and us as a collective, as a body so that we're prepared for what he has next. And if we rush through it like Abraham and Sarah and try to kind of do it on our own, we may kind of find that we've messed the whole thing up. Now, God can redeem all things, which is a good thing. He even redeemed that situation. But we need to learn to wait. And so if we can embrace the waiting a little bit, even though it's, there's tension in that, there's a quote here that I just, in, in reading about waiting, that I found that I really liked the imagery of. It's from Peter Scazzaro, and it says, if we can embrace the waiting, what new thing might be standing backstage waiting to make its entrance? And for us as a church, what new thing may God have for us? What is waiting for us backstage to make its entrance when we are ready and we're prepared and God knows we're ready for it? And so my encouragement to us, in the midst of our own church waiting, um, uncertainty, is to be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. because we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And as an individual, whatever you are struggling with or bringing with you, the story that you find yourself in, um, remember, uh, the same applies to you. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord, because you will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Morning is coming. Uh, and while the light might be long, daylight will break. We're about to head to communion, um, and as we do that, I think there's two important truths about waiting that we discover here, and so I'm going to take advantage of communion to add a little couple things to my sermon. So we've talked, I've talked about endings in this place of the depths, this, and endings are a kind of death, but our hope as Christians, is that death always leads to resurrection. And the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead empowers us to affirm that endings are always a gateway to new beginnings. And we can keep that in mind as we come to the table this morning. But the other thing that we're reminded of as we come to communion is that our waiting, as individuals, as a body, as the greater body of Christ, is all caught up in the longer waiting 
for Christ to return. When we know that God will come and make all things new and redeem all things, as Psalm 130 tells us, with him is full redemption. And God in Christ will redeem all things. But for now, we wait. And it's not always clear what God is doing. And yet in communion, we know that Christ has come and he has conquered. He has conquered death. He has conquered the depths. And so we wait for him to come and bring that fully manifest into our world. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have communion. And my hope for us this morning is that our lament can at least turn to courage and then eventually to praise. Um, and there's steps, and the waiting is long at times, and you don't have to jump quickly. God is patient, and he works with us, and he journeys with us. But God, we are thankful that even in the depths you are there and that you reach out to us. And when we cry to you, God, you hear us. And God, so often we want to rush through the waiting. We don't like to wait. But God, give us the courage to wait with you, to put our hope in you and in your word, to know that in our endings, the gateway to new life has begun because in Christ, even the most final ending from our perspective has been conquered. Thank you for the hope of that and the hope that you are coming to make all things new. May we live in that as your people. May you give us the courage to wait and to eventually have our cries of lament turned into praise as you work in us and as we see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Thank you for communion and for this opportunity to come before you and to receive from you your presence and your goodness and your power. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. During this next time, communion will be available on the tables around the sanctuary. Um, you are welcome to take it at your own pace by yourself, um, either at the table or bring it back to your seat and take it there. <laughs>